0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, it's fantastic to see so many of you here today, as we welcome Senator Bernie Sanders for an address in Q&A. I believe this is the first absolutely max capacity event we've had since before COVID. So it's fantastic to see all of you here today. Bernie Sanders is a senior United States Senator for Vermont, and the longest serving independent senator in US congressional history. A self described democratic socialist, Sanders contested the Democratic Party presidential nomination in 2016 and 2020. The Senator's new book, It's Okay to be Angry About Capitalism, came out earlier this week. And we are delighted to welcome Senator Sanders back to the Union to discuss his book and his vision for the future. The Senator will give some opening remarks about the book before we move into a moderated audience Q&A. Um, 100 copies of the book, including 15 signed copies, will be for sale in the Goodman Library after the event. So please head over there for your chance to buy one. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. It's okay to want something better. Bernie Sanders takes on the 1% and calls out a system that is rigged against the rest of us, where a handful of oligarchs have never had it so good, with more money than they could ever spend in a thousand lifetimes, yet the majority struggle to survive, where a decent standard of living for all seems an impossible dream. How can we accept that three billionaires control more wealth than the bottom half of our society, that our political system allows the super-rich to buy elections, or that our energy system rewards the people causing the climate crisis? How much longer can it go on? We must demand change and here is where change begins. It's okay to be angry about capitalism since the vision of what would be possible if a political revolution took place. If we would finally recognize that economic rights are human rights and work to create a society that provides them. This isn't some utopian utopian fantasy, this is a democracy as we should know it. Is it really too much to ask? Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Senator Bernie Sanders.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for inviting me uh, to be with you. Um, And uh, I want to take a a little bit of time to tell you what the book is about. Um, The book, or in my view, my perception of politics has to do with three major factors. And each of them is is pretty difficult. Number one, it may seem easy, but it's not, is to go into our hearts and say, what's going on in the world that we live? And often what is going on in the world that we live is not what you see on the television or read in the newspaper, quite the contrary. In my country, and obviously I'm a lot more familiar with the economics and politics of the United States than the UK, but in my country today, over 60% of the American people live paycheck to paycheck. Do you all know what that means, paycheck to paycheck? My brother, who is here someplace, and I grew up in a family uh, that lived paycheck to paycheck. And what it means in America today is that people go out and they work and often they work hard and often they work long hours. But at the end of that week when they get their paycheck, there is nothing left. And if during that week their automobile breaks down, they may not have the money to get the car fixed and get to work. If you can't get to work, you get fired and then you have no income. Unlike the UK, we do not have a national health care system. And if somebody gets sick, the medical bill may be very high and people then living paycheck to paycheck have to decide literally whether they go to the doctor or they take their kids to the doctor or not. And we have some 500,000 Americans every year who go bankrupt with medically related bills. And if somebody ends up in the hospital, and gets the bill for $100,000. Many people can't pay that off, and they go bankrupt as a result. In America, rents are going up for working people in many communities throughout the country. And if you're paying a certain amount and you're just getting by and your landlord says, well, sorry, we've got to raise your rent by 25%, well, you can't afford it. What do you do? Well, you have to move, go from one apartment to another, And what happens to your child who is in school in the neighborhood? Well, your child has got to get up, got to go into a new school, readjust. And it's kind of hard on the child. Living paycheck to paycheck today, whether it's the UK or the United States is enormously stressful. And one of the points we make in the book, which we do not talk about often enough in America, our life expectancy, you know, when you talk about what is our goal as human beings, what do we all want to do? And by and large, most of us want to live long and happy and productive lives, right? Nobody wants to die young. Nobody, you know, wants to sit in front of a TV set their entire lives. Nobody wants to be miserable. Some of us are, but that's not what we want. (laughs) We want long, happy and productive lives. But in my country right now, and this is before COVID, COVID has taken its terrible toll all over the world. We've lost over a million Americans. Before COVID, life expectancy in the United States was less than in most other industrialized countries. And in many parts of America, life expectancy before COVID has gone down. Why is that? Well, what the doctors tell us is that people are dying from diseases of despair. You all know what that means? Anybody know what that means? What diseases of despair are about has everything to do with hopelessness. So if somebody had a good job, say you worked in a factory and you're making good wages and that factory shuts down, maybe it goes to China, maybe it just shuts down for whatever reason, and you get another job at half or two thirds of the wages. If you can't afford health care. If you can't afford to send your kid to college. If you are worried that your children and by and large in the United States today, in general, the younger generation will have a lower standard of living than their parents. And you look around and you say, my life is going nowhere. My kids' lives may be worse then my life, I am gonna take to the bottle. I'm gonna drink a lot. So we see a whole lot of people becoming addicted to alcohol, become alcoholics. We are seeing ferocious, horrendous numbers in terms of drugs in the United States. We lost over 100,000 Americans last year from overdoses. And addiction in the United States is a very, very serious problem, which we are struggling now to figure out how to deal with. And in addition to drug addiction and alcohol addiction and tobacco addiction, we are looking at increases in suicide and suicidal ideation. And COVID has, for a variety of reasons, made a bad situation much worse. But it was there even before COVID. So in the midst of an economy in which we are seeing working class families struggling and over 60% living paycheck to paycheck, we are also seeing another phenomenon. And that is the people on top in the United States have never ever had it so good there is today more income and wealth inequality in America today than has ever existed before. Now we don't talk about it a lot. And one of the points of this book is not just to talk about those issues, but to try to explain why we don't talk about those issues. Because maybe the major crisis that we face is not all the crises we know, but the fact that we're not dealing with the crisis, we're shoving them aside for particular reasons. Any case, in America today, quite unbelievably, I think, and outrageously, three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. The top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 92%. . When I was growing up a few years ago in America, <laughs> you know, George Washington's time, George and I worked <laughs> together. Uh, CEOs, you know, there's nothing new about the fact that the owners of companies make more money than their workers, nothing new, that's always been the case. But back then, 70, 80 years ago, the gap between the CEO, the head of the company and the worker was about 20 to one the guy who ran the company made 20 times more money than the average worker. And over the years, that gap has grown wider and wider and wider. And now in America, the head of the large corporations make 400 times more than the average employer in that corporation. Everybody knows that in America, people are angry, and you see, I'm sure, on the television, manifestations of that anger but one reason that people are angry is that if you are a worker in America you really in terms of wages and income have gone almost nowhere in the last 50 years and here is an astounding fact which is not talked about terribly much and that is in the last 50 years as all of you know there has been a revolution in technology I was mayor of the city of Burlington in 1981. That's when I was elected, I served through 1989. When I walked into city hall as mayor, there were no computers, none. There were no printers. There certainly was no email at all. So there has been a revolution over the last 40, 50 years in technology which has made every worker in the United States and the UK significantly more productive and yet despite that increase in productivity today the weekly wage for the average American worker in inflation-adjusted dollars is less than it was 50 years ago. Got that? Great increase in productivity in real inflation accounted for dollars People are earning less. There was a study done by the Rand Corporation, which is certainly not a left wing group. (laughs) And what they said is that over the last 50 years in America, there has been a 50, five zero trillion dollar redistribution of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. 1%. So what we are looking at is a country in which the people on top have never had it so good. The middle class is shrinking. The working class is struggling. And at the bottom of the ladder, we have in America today over 500,000 people who are homeless. In America today, and this book has a whole chapter on health care, and I hope you study it because I understand very well that the NHS here is having its problems. And some people are looking to the United States as perhaps a solution to the problems. My strong suggestion is that is the wrong place to look. (laughs) So I, I make the point that healthcare, the healthcare crisis in America, in terms of its unaffordability, in terms of the fact that over 60,000 people a year die because they don't go to a doctor on time because they can't afford to, is part of the overall crisis. So you have again people on top never ever ever done better, middle class shrinking, working class struggling, people in the bottom in very serious trouble. We had a lot of kids in America who literally go hungry and we're trying to deal with that in a variety of ways but that is the current reality all right now what else is going on in the economy in america and i'm sure the there are overlaps, similarities here in the uk we are different countries many things are different but there are many similarities as well now the other important fact in terms of what's going on in the united states is an increase significant increase in concentration of ownership Do you know what i mean by that what I mean by that is there was once a time in America and around the world, somebody started a business, he had a business, you had a business, somebody had a business. What has gone on in recent years is large corporations have bought up other corporations and then consolidated with other country, uh, corporations and merged with other corporations so that right now in our country, in sector after sector, whether it is agriculture, whether it is Wall Street and financial services, whether it is media, whether it is uh, transportation. In virtually every sector of American society, we see a handful of large corporations dominating that sector, which makes it much easier if there is no real competition to engage in price fixing, which is exactly what's going on. Now in America today, we have inflation not quite as bad as it is for you. We believe the studies that we have seen is that over half of the cost of inflation has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine, has nothing to do with the breaking down of supply chains from China or whatever. It has everything to do with corporate greed. And what these large corporations have done is use the war in Ukraine, use the breakdown in supply chains, which is real and has an impact. They use that as an excuse to jack up their prices. So in America, our people have paid very, very high prices for gas at the pump. Well, it just turns out that ExxonMobil made $200 billion in profit last year. Food prices are going up. Turns out that the major food corporations made huge profits. Turns out that the major real estate companies who own apartments making huge profits. So under the guise of supply chain problems or the war, what they have done in that confusion is raise prices substantially, see record-breaking profits, and ordinary people fall further and further behind. Now, I'll tell you a personal story. Uh, I have been involved, my office has been involved in last year, last two years, in about a dozen strikes where workers have stood up, they've gone out on strike, and we have tried to provide the assistance that we could, and sometimes we have been helpful. And uh, what we learned when we got involved in these situations is invariably the corporation that the workers were striking was making very high profits, maybe even record-breaking profits. So you're and you think to yourself, well, and then what they would do is they go to the workers and say, well, we wanna cut back on your benefits, or we're not gonna give you a wage increase commensurate with inflation. And you sit and you think, why with record-breaking profits would they wanna do that? And it's case after case, I'll never forget, there were women in California, mostly women, working in a large bakery owned by a billionaire family and their demands were minimal minimal and the company fought them and fought them I think the workers eventually won or won most of their demands and you began to realize two things number one it wasn't the money they could afford the money it was the power it was telling workers in a union you think If you stand up and you oppose me, you're gonna get something. Got news for you, I got the power, you don't. And I don't care how just your cause is. I don't care how much money I make, how much you need it, you ain't getting it, because I have the power. That was lesson number one that came right across my desk, loud and clear. And the second lesson that we learned is when we dealt with company X. It turned out that company X was owned by somebody else. Wasn't the company, they didn't even make the decisions. And then it turns out, after a little bit of study, you find that in America, you got three, one, two, three, Wall Street firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. Anybody ever hear of BlackRock? All right. It's not a well-known company. No, it is not. It is not. you got those three investment firms that have assets combined of control assets. They don't own it. They control it of 20 trillion dollars. They have ownership all over the world. And it turns out that in the United States, they control, they are the major shareholders. They don't control, they are major shareholders of 95% of the S&P 500. So when you talk about power and you talk about concentration of ownership, you got three Wall Street firms Combined, there are the major shareholders in 95% of the major corporations in America. A few thousand people make incredible economic decisions. So that's concentration of ownership. And then the third concern that I have about the role that big money is playing in America has to do with our political system, which is different than your political system. Some years ago, The Supreme Court of the United States, which as many of you know, is now a very right wing court. Several years ago, a number of years ago, they cast the decision called Citizens United. And essentially the case was people in an organization called Citizens United came together and said, look, we want to put money into the political process. We are American citizens. We believe in freedom of speech and we want to express our speech in elections. And right now, they said, there are laws there which limit how much money we can spend. And therefore, these laws are denying us Americans our freedom of speech which is protected by the Constitution. And the Supreme Court said, you're right. You are able to buy democracy you're able to buy elections, that is your constitutional right. So what happened out of that decision came what is called super PACs. I don't know how many people know what they are. PACs are a political action committee and a super PAC is a a different type. It's an independent, so to speak, uh, committee. And right now in America, billionaires can contribute as much money as they want, often without disclosure, into this committee which will then buy ads and do all kinds of political work to defeat candidates that the billionaires don't like and to support candidates who they do like. So we have in America today the best democracy that money can buy. (laughs) And it is a very serious problem. I'll give you an example, personal example, if you like. Over the last number of years, I have worked very, very hard to try to elect young progressives to the US House of Representatives, and we've had some success. And what the moneyed people are now doing, very consciously, everybody knows it, they have formed a super PAC to make sure, to try to defeat those candidates. Often those candidates, often our people who we elected are young people of color, often women of color. But they are standing up in Congress for working people, that is making the big money interest uncomfortable. And what they wanna do is show as an example that young people coming from working class backgrounds who are fighting for working class people cannot succeed. And they're gonna spend millions and millions of dollars trying to defeat those people. So that is what we are dealing with in terms of politics. Very wealthy people having an enormous impact over the political process. Last issue that concerns me. And that is the role of media in American society. Our media is different than your media. In America, there are eight major media conglomerates that control about 90% of what the American people see here and read. About 90% of the contact the people get exposed to comes from eight major media conglomerates. Owned by obviously very, very wealthy people. Now in America, we don't have censorship. I get on television every other day and so forth. But what you do have is a situation where almost all of the media limits itself in the kinds of questions and issues that are allowed to be discussed. And one of the points that we make early in the book, and I make early in the book is what real politics is as opposed to media politics. And I want you all to appreciate that. Media politics has to do with polling. It has to do with gossip. It has to do, this person doesn't like this person, and this person is upset about this. And look at the dumb thing that member of Congress said. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. The real issues, i.e. what is happening to working people and why, they are almost never discussed and they're never discussed because the people who own the society really don't want that discussion to take place. Do you think the billionaire class, the ruling class of America wants a discussion on the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality? Do they want a discussion as to why so many of our people are living paycheck to paycheck? Do they want a discussion as to why in America we spend twice as much per capita on health care as you do? and any other major nation on earth, and yet we have 85 million people uninsured and underinsured. Do you think they want that discussion? They don't. So politics then becomes like a, a reality TV show. It's gossip, it's humor, it's stupidity, it's a lot of things. But it is not a substantive discussion about the issues facing the American people. The book not only deals with those issues, it then says, okay, where do we want to go? Because politics is not only understanding about where we are today, equally important, it is having a vision for the future that goes beyond tomorrow. So we are in a world today, in major nations like the United States and the UK, we have extraordinary wealth, we have Technology, which through artificial intelligence and robotics and everything else is creating more and more wealth, extraordinary breakthroughs. The question that we should be asking ourselves is not whether we cut programs, is not whether we deny workers the income that they need. The question that we should be asking is why aren't we living in a society in which all of our people have a decent standard of living. Is that a utopian vision? It is not, it really is not. This is not 1820, this is not 1920, this is 2023. And if you think about it for five minutes, do you not think that in the United States and UK, we have different healthcare systems, but do you not think that either of our countries and other countries around the world are capable of producing the doctors and nurses and the other medical personnel and the technology we need to provide quality care to all people free of charge? Is that really utopian? I don't think so. Is it utopian to say that education, and you're sitting here in one of the great universities in the world, that education is an inherent right of all people? that everybody has the right to get a good quality education free of charge regardless of the income in which they were born into? Is that really a radical idea? In the United States, if you want to become a doctor, it is not uncommon that you leave school for $500,000 in debt. If you are a minority kid coming from a family who doesn't have a lot of money, not unusual that you will leave college forty fifty thousand dollars in debt and you've got to figure out how you're going to pay off that debt over the years. Do you think it is really a radical idea to say that education should be a right of all people and not just a privilege? And what the book talks about picking up on a very important speech that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of our great presidents, gave in 1944. Now, 1944, as you all know, was the midst, the ending of the world war and everybody's attention was on the war. And what he said in that speech never got really a whole lot of attention, but it was a very radical and profound speech. And what he said, and I'm obviously paraphrasing him, what he said was we in America are very proud of our political system. We have a bill of rights, which guarantees people political rights, the right to vote, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, a whole bunch of political freedoms that we have protected by the Constitution of the United States. He said, that's great. But then he asks this question which I want you all to think about. And you know, I'm sure you talk a whole lot about freedom, right? Everybody talks about freedom, what is freedom? How do we become free, Etc. What Roosevelt said in 1944 is that people cannot really be free unless they have basic economic rights. So right now, if you're working 50 or 60 hours a week to keep your family going, are you really free? Is that what freedom is about? If you can't afford to go to a doctor when you're sick or your kid is sick, is that freedom? If you are on a job today, as tens of millions of people are where you have no power over the job, you do. You're going to go to a firm, work at a company, work in a factory. And somebody says, sorry, you're gone. I don't like you. You're out. You're not doing a good job. I didn't do anything wrong. You're out of here. You're not getting a pay raise. And by the way, you will do exactly as I tell you to do. And if you don't, you're out of here. You're a cog in a machine. You don't like it, there's the door. And tens of millions of workers live under those conditions. Are you free, in a deep sense, when you go to a job that you hate and you're doing that job for one reason, you need the income to stay alive? So this is the year 2023 with all kinds of technology, all kinds of wealth, and it is time for us to rethink many of those issues, to understand that in the world today, if we use the technology out there appropriately, we can provide a decent standard of living for all people. And that's the challenge that we face. All of you are aware of the explosion and and, uh, increase in the utilization of artificial intelligence and robotics. Who will make the decision as to who benefits from that explosion in technology. Nobody denies that in America, I'm sure it's here as well, that over the next 20, 30 years, tens and tens of millions of jobs are gonna be ended. People will no longer be able to do the work they're doing today. Who makes that decision and what happens to those workers who are displaced? So if if a robot comes in And does your job, does that mean it's really good news because your work week is gonna go down from 40 or 50 hours now to 20 hours? Are you gonna benefit from that? Or do the people who own the technology be the only beneficiaries of that? Where is that discussion? Who makes those decisions? So what the book ultimately is about is creating a vibrant democracy where workers have a say in the future of this country, which is certainly not the case right now. All right, I've talked probably longer than I meant to. Um, I think I raised one or two issues. (laughs) Uh, And I would be um, more than happy to take questions. I'm not sure how we should proceed here, but uh, uh, (laughs) thank you.